0: at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 10th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we take a close look at an abundant marine bacterium, and we hear from David Grimm with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The tiny marine cyanobacteria, Prochlorococcus, are the smallest photosynthetic organisms averaging about one-half a micron in diameter. But what they lack in size, they make up for in abundance. These minuscule green picoplankton are probably the most common photosynthetic organisms on the planet, and they produce a huge percentage of the oxygen we breathe. They also appear to produce a surprising number of vesicles, even tinier membrane-bound packets released into the water around them. I spoke with Steve Biller about this discovery and what it might mean for the world's oceans.
1: We described the finding that uh, Prochlorococcus, which is a globally important cyanobacterium in the world's oceans, releases tiny, so on the order of 100 nanometer diameter, vesicles. We found that in natural seawater samples, these vesicles are abundant and they seem to be produced by a wide range of marine bacteria. So vesicles are a previously unrecognized component of marine ecosystems, and we think that they are probably playing an important role in mediating interactions among bacteria and their environment.
0: So let's talk about the cyanobacteria in question. Prochlorococcus, how abundant are they and where do they tend to live?
1: So Prochlorococcus is a pretty amazing organism. So each individual Prochlorococcus cell is less than a micron in diameter, but they're pretty ubiquitous in the upper part of the mid-latitude ocean. So say roughly from 45 degrees north latitude to about 40 degrees south. We don't find them near the coasts. So they really seem to thrive in the more nutrient-poor open oceans. Mm. They turn out to be the most abundant photosynthetic organism on the planet. So there's about 10 to the 27th cells. So that's a billion, billion, billion Prochlorococcus out in the oceans. Together, these cells, with this huge population size, carry out roughly something on the order of 10% of all global photosynthesis. So they're taking sunlight and carbon dioxide and making organic carbon, and they're an important part of the Earth's biogeochemical nutrient cycles and forming the base of the ocean food chain.
0: And so we're talking about these tiny, tiny little bacteria and then They're also releasing membrane-bound packets called vesicles. Is that a normal thing for microbes, you know, in the ocean, out of the ocean? Is that something that they typically do?
1: Vesicle release is emerging as a common theme in all of cellular life, uh, and they've been found in varying contexts in all three domains, so eukaryotes, archaea, and bacteria. Mm -hmm. The evidence for vesicle release in bacteria goes actually back for decades but for a long time they were thought to be largely artifacts or just otherwise ignored but you know starting in around the mid 90s thanks to some great work from some other groups we started to realize that these structures were real and potentially important so they've been examined in in some common laboratory typically pathogenic bacteria but this is sort of the first evidence, to our knowledge, for vesicle release in photosynthetic bacteria. So it's really a new dimension that we need to explore about their physiology.
0: And so why do cells from all these different domains, what are some of the reasons that they actually release vesicles?
1: There's no definitive answer to why, uh, but we're starting to get a lot of ideas. So and most, most of the clear examples of potential functions have come from pathogenic bacteria like Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a human pathogen. These vesicles are also known to contribute to biofilm formation in certain bacteria. They can help move signaling compounds around. And there seems to be a large role in cellular defense for these. So some cases against antibiotics. In other cases, they might help to relieve some of the stresses and damage that can occur to a cell's outer membrane or to help it get rid of misfolded or damaged proteins.
0: When you look inside of the packets associated with these marine Cyanobacteria. What did you find in there?
1: So we found a pretty diverse array of biomolecules in these perchlorococcus vesicles. So we found a number of different lipids, which is the major component of the cell's membrane and also form the boundaries of these vesicles. We also found a variety of proteins associated with these vesicles that came from different parts of the cell, including a number of membrane proteins, which are typically insoluble and can't really be exported in other fashions. Mm -hmm. One of the other really surprising things was that we showed that Prochlorococcus is releasing little snippets of DNA from all across its genome within these vesicles, and it's really kind of a mystery as to what that's for and, and how that's happening.
0: Right. Could it be communication? Could it be horizontal gene transfer? It could be any, or could it could just be taking out the trash.
1: Yeah. Well, we think that there's got to be some sort of a real purpose for this. You know, or there are challenges really to figure out what that is.
0: Yeah. One thing I was really interested in was how often these vesicles are formed by the bacteria.
1: From the lab, we estimate that each cell is releasing something like two to five of these every time they divide, although that release isn't necessarily strictly timed to cell division. And the number that they release may be slightly different in the oceans, mm-hmm. but they're churning these things out at a fairly regular clip.
0: So these organisms tend to be in low-nutrient waters, as you mentioned earlier. What are some of the theories about why they would give up such you know hard-earned molecules a couple times during their lifespan?
1: Yeah, this was really one of the most surprising aspects of this finding to us, because we know that Prochlorococcus has evolved a number of different adaptations to growth in very low nutrient conditions. So they have, you know, a tiny cell size, they have a really small and streamlined genome, and that, so, you know, everything to this point has been telling us that they're really conserving all of their, you know, precious nutrients, but now we're seeing that they're just getting rid of them pretty continuously. This is all saying that we need to think about other roles outside of pathogenic context for Mm -hmm. vesicles. The other thing that was surprising that it's not it's not just perchlorococcus. We used the idea that there was DNA within the Prochlorococcus vesicles to sequence DNA from the vesicles that we found in other natural seawater samples and we found that you know a whole variety of microbes that are living out in these nutrient poor regions are actually releasing them. So it comes down to kind of a bit of a common goods question. You know, if you've got vesicles releasing nutrients, well that could potentially be accessed by a large number of different microbes. So one explanation could be as we're talking about there could be some role for horizontal gene transfer for moving this DNA around. There could be some benefit from that. The vesicles could be contributing to some of the high rates of gene transfer that we see in marine systems. There's also a possible role for them in defense. So there's a number of marine viruses that infect these cells in the oceans. So one idea that we describe a little bit in the paper is the concept that they could be acting as kind of a decoy uh, for phage. So phage typically bind to the outside of a cell, and these vesicles are basically from the outside of the cell and have a number of the proteins and other molecules that the phage use to recognize their target. So the phage can basically be trying to infect the vesicles rather than trying to infect the cell. There's also potentially a benefit to Prochlorococcus for releasing some of this carbon Because we know that Prochlorococcus grows better when it's actually around other heterotrophic bacteria because they turn out to rely on a lot of these other bacteria to help them get rid of things like reactive toxic oxygen species that most cells can detoxify themselves, but Prochlorococcus has lost some of the key genes for that. One idea is that maybe releasing some of this carbon could help facilitate this. So if you have enough carbon around, you're sort of encouraging the, <laughs> right. uh, the other bacteria to be around you, farming your, your own uh, helpers out. And there's also a potential role for these in signaling in the dilute environment of the oceans. So if you're just trying to release a signaling compound out into the oceans, then that one molecule could just diffuse out. Maybe it reaches a target, maybe it doesn't. If it does reach a target, you know, maybe there's just not enough of that signal to really elicit a response. Mm-hmm. But if you pack a lot of a particular signal into a vesicle, then you sort of end up with a high local concentration. So then if that vesicle does happen to reach one of its intended targets, you would have a much higher number of those signaling molecules, kind of a higher signal-to-noise ratio that might make it more effective to communicate in that fashion. Okay. Okay.
0: Let's talk about scale a little bit more. So even though these cyanobacteria are tiny, and the vesicles are even smaller, their abundance can really make things add up. How big of an impact could this have on our understanding of the flow of matter and energy in marine systems? Well,
1: that's really one of the big challenges that's ahead of us. We know that this is kind of a new component of the dissolved organic carbon pools in the ocean and that these vesicles may help to, at least in part, contribute to the carbon and energy resources for a number of the microbes. And One of the big steps going forward is to really better understand the dynamics of this. So we know, at least from our early estimates, from Prochlorococcus alone, it seems like this organism is exporting something on the order of 10 million to 100 million kilograms of carbon into the oceans every day just in the form of vesicles. And I think that's actually probably a pretty conservative number. And then you start to add in all the other vesicles that are being released from other marine microbes, and those numbers are going to get even larger. Mm -hmm. We also need to better understand the enzymes and proteins that are associated with the vesicles and whether that can be playing a role in biogeochemical cycles and helping vesicle material to be accessed by different marine microbes and things of that nature.
0: Really interesting. Well, Steve Biller, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Steve Biller and colleagues write about the abundance and diversity of bacterial vesicles in the world's oceans in this week's science. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the coloration of ancient marine reptiles. We're able to tell a lot about ancient animals from fossilized bones, size, shape, method of locomotion, but figuring out what ancient animals look like to anyone not using x-rays has remained a real challenge. So, Dave... How are paleontologists going beyond the bones?
2: Well, um, in the past few years, paleontologists have developed some cool new methods for figuring out what some of these ancient creatures have looked like. But they've mainly applied them to fossil birds. And in this new study, they apply them to some ancient marine reptiles. Three animals in particular, leatherback turtle that lived about 55 million years ago, a mosasaur, which kind of looked like a bit like a sea serpent. And that lived about 86 million years ago. And then an ichthyosaur, which lived about 190 million years ago. And these creatures all lived in the seas of the time.
0: And so these are ancient creatures that we have fossils of, but how do they actually try to find out how they looked?
2: Well, what happens with some of these fossils is that there are in the rock that the fossils embedded in there's actually outlines of soft tissue that presents as sort of a dull black material and for a long time scientists just thought these were just remnants of tissues, that they weren't very important. But when the researchers looked at these materials, looked at these black outlines with a a scanning electron microscope, they saw these dense layers of these tiny rugby ball-shaped structures and these tiny bits are the same size and the same shape as pigment-bearing structures called melanosomes found in the skin of modern-day lizards and also in the feathers of birds. And based on the shape of these structures, the researchers conclude that the pigments they were looking at were black.
0: Okay, so they're not actually testing the chemical composition of this material. They're rather looking at the shape of it?
2: Well, they also bombarded the fossils with charged particles, and they analyzed these particles. They also found evidence of a dark pigment, one that typically lends a Black or brown color to skin or feathers.
0: They're able to actually see the color. Well, but did they have any patterns, or did they look like animals that we know about today?
2: Well, yeah. When they took a closer look, they found that the patterns were actually very similar to sea creatures that are seen today. And what they were basically seeing was a darker pattern on sort of the back of the animal or the dorsal side, and a lighter pattern on the ventral or belly side. And that actually makes a lot of sense because a lot of these animals are predators and basically what happens is you have a dark backside and a lighter underside it actually provides very nice camouflage in the water, helps you sneak up on prey. The dark backside also confers some other advantages. These animals would have been swimming in very cold waters and when they went up to the surface they were actually all air breathers and when they went up to the surface this dark backside actually helped them absorb sunlight if you think about wearing a dark t-shirt on a sunny day that helped them warm up after a long time in some very frigid waters.
0: So far, we've seen some of this research in birds, and now we have marine reptiles. Is there another place to go? Well, we're seeing a lot more
2: of this. And so the idea is obviously that we'd like to get a much better sense of some of the other ancient animals that lived around this time, not only for our curiosity, but actually these colors can shed a lot of light on the behavior of these animals as well.
0: Next up, we have a story on making new friends, but not keeping the old. The question is, do we have a friend quota? Do we keep the same number of friends constant while swapping people in and out of those roles? So Dave, why are we asking this question? What suggests that there might be an upper limit on our friend upkeep?
2: Well, having friends is very nice, and having close friends is not just nice, but actually can be important. Friends, especially close friendships, are vital to our health, our well-being, our mental well-being. So it's important to have these close friendships. But As everybody knows, maintaining close friendships, especially in this era of Facebook and text messaging, is difficult. It takes a lot of time if you really want to talk to somebody on the phone or visit them. These are kind of expensive socially, time-wise, expensive relationships to have. So researchers have had this idea that perhaps we limit the number of friends we have because having too many friends would actually start to maybe negatively impact our life.
0: Okay. So – that's the question. So how did the researchers try to answer it?
2: Well, they went to school or they actually uh, did some surveys of some students that were in school. This was a, a British study. They recruited 24 students that were aged about 17 to 19 and they gave them each an 18 month contract from a major cell phone company with 500 free minutes. Uh, that's like the gift of a lifetime for a 17 year old and unlimited texting as well. And then they followed them for 18 months. The students lived in the same city in the United Kingdom at first, but over this time period, a lot of them had left for university in other parts of England. And what the researchers did was they tracked not only the amount of time the students spent talking to friends and family on the phone, but just who they were talking to.
0: So they were talking to friends and family and some of these are close relationships. Was there a major change when they underwent major life transitions?
2: Well, the researchers found that there wasn't a big change in the family relationship. So if you we spent five hours a week talking to mom on the phone, you still did that. What was interesting is that the friends got swapped around. So if your close friend was Jim and you tended to spend maybe a couple hours a week talking to him or texting and you went to college and you met a new friend named John, chances are Jim got swapped with John and now you were spending maybe a couple hours a week texting and talking to John instead of Jim. So you still were spending that time on a friend. It was just a different friend.
0: Well, let's talk about the caveats here. Um, how broad broadly can this study actually be applied?
2: Well, it's a small study, so, you know, experts caution that we can't apply it too broadly at this point. But it does really suggest what researchers have long suspected, which is that these close friendships are important, but we can't have too many of them. And as we gain more friends, we may tend to shed the old ones.
0: Finally, we have a story on fire ant structures. Fire ants can act like transformers. They can group together and form a life raft or a bridge to cross hazardous areas. And these abilities have caught the attention of engineers. Why are mechanical engineers interested in this, Dave?
2: These bridges, these fire ants form, are really amazing. And I highly encourage listeners to check out the video of these ants forming a bridge on the website. They basically, between either tree limbs or leaves or other structures in nature, these ants actually form these living bridges. They clump together and other ants can cross the bridges. And it's just really amazing. What the researchers were sort of interested in this study is these should be fairly flimsy structures, right? Because it's just made of ants. We're not talking about bridges made of concrete or steel. And yet they're very resilient. If you shake these bridges, the ants maintain the bridge. This is really living architecture that's very strong. And they wanted to figure out how the ants do this.
0: In the wild, they're forming bridges in order to make to cross hazardous areas. How did they get them to form a bridge in the lab?
2: Well, what they did is they put these ants in a couple of funnels that were not too far away from each other, and they had the ants form a bridge. And then they started shaking the funnels, basically, to try to disrupt this bridge. And what they found is that the more they shook these funnels, the ants pulled themselves closer and closer together, really sort of strengthening this bridge. They tightened their grips on one another. And the ants are basically linking arms and legs to form these bridges in the first place, and also that individuals that were scurrying across these bridges tended to change course and gather at the beginning or the end of the bridge to help dampen the effects of the vibrations. And when holes or weak points appeared in the bridges, the ants mended the gaps by linking together at that spot. So there was a very dynamic bridge that these ants had formed. It wasn't just sort of like it couldn't be broken very easily because the ants were always shifting around to make sure that wherever there was a weak spot, they were plugging up that hole, as it were.
0: These are kind of little self-assembling systems. So is this what makes engineers so interested in it?
2: Yeah, engineers are really interested in this. Obviously, we would love building materials on our bridges to be able to respond to stress, to earthquakes, and not break and just be able to be very dynamic like these ant bridges are. So this is not just sort of a cool find of nature. It could actually have applications for the human world.
0: Okay. So what else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about the lost Agropolis of New England that was found with lasers. Uh, Very cool. And also a story about a new insight into just how much what's called biofluorescence is happening in the seas. It turns out a lot, lot more fish are glowing underwater than we knew, and there's some very cool pictures for that. For Science Insider, we've got a wrap up of some of our most popular stories of 2013, in case you missed them. Also, a story about a billionaire's gift to six U.S. cancer centers. Finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science, this week's Science Live is about why preserving large carnivores can save ecosystems. And next week's chat is about how college students decide whether to enter scientific or engineering fields, and also why they decide to drop out. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks,
0: Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the January 10th, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.